Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, um, and thank you for having me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11 uh, and various other places in Acts as well, um, but Acts chapter 11, and going to look at a little bit at the Antioch church again, uh, which if you've been around for any of this series, you'll know we're talking about the Antioch church as the sort of the classic, it's a church in the New Testament is in modern day Syria, and it's the classic resource hub church uh, that is really effective at reaching the local community and at restoring the local community, but it's also a church that resources the church all around the world in the Bible. And we're going to look at that, the story of that church, because it's a really helpful church for us to look at as we consider what it looks like for us as a local church to be a resource church, as well as a church that reaches and restores, as we've seen in this series. So we're going to be in Acts 11, but then we're going to sort of jump into chapters 13, 14, and 15 as well. And so... Bear with me, we're going to stay with the Antioch church and miss out all the bits that aren't about them, uh, just at least for this reading, and then we're going to look at what it has to show us about being a resourcing church. And so we're going to start in Acts 11 and verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that means Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. And these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we're going to jump into chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So these guys have now been sent out on mission from Antioch in Syria, down to Cyprus. And then they go and travel all over Turkey in 3 chapter 14 and what's now Turkey. And then they reappear at the end of chapter 14 in verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. So they've made it all the way back. Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they'd fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. This is the word of God. Antioch, as I said, in modern-day Syria, I think it's a pretty impressive church. I think as you look at this church and you think, wow, huge evangelistic impact, first church ever to start preaching the gospel to Gentiles, first time the word Christians is ever used is to describe these people, you would say this is a very impressive community. And we've already seen in this series, they reach their city with the gospel, and they restore people. And you've got to be doing a lot of that kind of work to have people notice that you are so like Jesus, they want to call you Christians. I mean, now there's like two billion of us. But then it was just them. And that's where the nickname first got given. So it's a pretty important place and pretty impressive place. And everywhere we look at this bit of the story, they pop up again. They always seem to be there in these sections of Acts. The Antioch, the, the hub church, around which all this other missionary activity is taking place. And we believe that God has called us, as a local church, to be similar. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves in terms of scale. We're not not saying we are like, we are as good as Antioch. You know, these guys are the first people ever called Christians, and we're definitely not. Uh, The Apostle Paul was their teaching pastor. Uh, (laughs) I am, you know what I mean? So we're kind of on different levels here, so let's just bear that in mind. At the same time, it is good sometimes to... Look at biblical examples to stir you to acts of faith. And it's also helpful for us to look at ourselves and see that we do have a lot of resources and gifts. And you can't really steward those gifts well if you don't realize you have them. And stewardship begins sometimes with a recognition of how much you have. And so it's no good for us pretending like, oh, well, we're not Antioch, so we're not really going to serve any. No, there is a lot of uh, gift and sort of power, influence, reach, money, leadership, just sheer numbers of people. There's a lot of of things this church has been given that effectively on the biblical principle that to them to whom much is given, from them much will be expected, we should assume that God is going to expect things of us in our service to the wider church. And that's a good thing to to pray for and a good thing to pursue, I think, in God. And that's the, the biblical argument, but also there is the prophetic argument, which is the one which Steve just shared on that video, which is, yeah, we believe God's spoken to us about not just being a very powerful waterfall here in London, but actually a very mile-wide waterfall that can actually touch many nations and resource the global church. And we believe God's called us to do that. My parents go to a little uh, village church in a little village in mid-Sussex. They go to a church called St. Mary's Balkan, and it's a sort of being a big old stone church in a little village Um, And there's probably about 70 or 80 people there sharing communion on a Sunday. And they pray for things around the world, and I'm sure some of them give financially to things around the world. But in all honesty, they don't see their mission as a community as primarily resourcing the global church or being a hub to serve the global church. And they shouldn't. That's not realistically what God has called them to do. They are there for their village. But there are other churches that God has put a much different expectation on, and you could say a bigger one, where... There's a church, for instance, a few miles from here on the Elephant and Castle. If you know Elephant and Castle, you get the bus. Round the roundabout, you'll notice that as you're heading north towards Waterloo, go round the, I used to live there, you go round the roundabout. On your left, up on the side, uh, on raised ground to your left, there is the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It is a very impressive, it looks almost like a, like a, a bit like a, an old temple. It's a very impressive looking building, sort of peering down at the roundabout. And they, when that church was built in the 1850s, I think, they were a church of 5,000 people. 
which is a pretty big church in Victorian London. It's a big church now. But they also felt led in God to set up a theological training college, which is still functioning in South London, and to plant over 200 churches, most of which were in London, and one of which was called Catford Hill Baptist Church, which is the church that has grown into the church we now know as King's. That church, in having a vision to resort, they were also in, important in the, believe it or not, in the abolition of slavery in North America because of Charles Spurgeon, who was the leader there, and his influence. So they are a very, very significant church globally, and they resource the church. And if they had thought to themselves, well, no, we're not really Antioch, so we're just going to stick here with our big church, a lot of things that we currently benefit, including this church, would not exist in the form it does. So it's helpful for us to aspire to be a resource church, I think, both on a biblical and strategic level and also prophetically. And in these passages, Antioch shows us how it's done. And they, what they show us is that you can resource the church in at least these two ways, and I think they're both good ones for us to consider. That they resource the church as a hub, and I've already used that word, the idea of this sort of nodal point in the middle of a wheel where everything comes in and out, and it resources the church by people and things and money and gifts and stuff coming in and going out. So they resource the church as a hub, but they also resource the church as a pioneer, as a puncher through, as a church that is going to be the first to address a difficult issue or be able to respond to something, and then other churches follow them through the hole. That's what Antioch does, and I think to some degree that's what we are called to do as well as a local church. So the first thing you notice is that Antioch resourced the church as a hub, and you can't really read the story without noticing something like this is happening. People are continually coming and going in and out again. Here are a few that I found, but there may be others you can find too. Chapter 11, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Right? So Barnabas in. Barnabas went to Tarsus, out, to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas and Saul come back. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they prophesied that a famine would come. The disciples determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea by Barnabas and Saul. Money and people out. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them out. Missionaries out. From there, they sailed to Antioch. Missionaries back. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Chapter 15. Some men came, boo hiss, and were teaching, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. False teachers in. Very quickly, false teachers kicked out. Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem about this question. Apostles out, and then back in. And it happens the whole way through. In just those examples, evangelists in, a pastor in, then out, a teacher in, prophets in, prophets and teachers out, apostles in, apostles out, all kinds of ordinary disciples in and out, false teachers in, false teachers out. So there's a lot of coming and going. It's a hub church. It's a place where things surface, where money and people and skills and teachings and gifts are both going in and coming out, it's basically, as an international hub, it's like the Heathrow of the early church. I was in Heathrow a couple of days ago at uh, Terminal 5. I don't know how much you fly. I don't fly very often, but when I do, I am familiar with sort of London-scale airports. I'm used to, I think airports are all that size because I've lived my entire life in the southeast of England and in London, and so I, basically my airports are always Gatwick or Heathrow. And so I assume that's how big all airports are. And then you realize that almost no airports in the world are the size of Gatwick and Heathrow. And you get to the small ones, and you feel this is actually really kind of nice. 
You know, you, 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 get, you get out the plane, and then 10 minutes later, you're like, I'm at the door. What do I do with this hour of my life? I didn't realize. It normally takes me 10 minutes to get to the bus, which is then going to drive across the tarmac for some farcical reason, and then drop me off at a train, which then take me under the ground, and then I'll reappear somewhere else, up 19 escalators, a mile walk, through passport control. It's like, and then you get to a small airport, you're like, oh, oh, oh I'm here. This is amazing. It's like revival has come. And if you have that experience, sometimes the small airport can just be really nice because uh, it's far less busy, it's easier to park, easier to navigate, far less stressful. But at the same time, there are things that small airports cannot provide that large airports can. And so, in a sense, the airport network needs both. It needs the huge resource hubs and it also needs the little airports. The little airports can be much more pleasant consumer experiences, can't they? Um, but there are things that the little airport can't provide and that are only possible if the big airport picks up the tab. And so I was in the Russian speaker, I was in eastern Ukraine a few years ago. And uh, I, um, you know when you look at your ticket and it says, you know, the kind of plane you're going to be in and it says something usually beginning with Airbus or Boeing. That's what I'm looking for. And I looked at the ticket and it said Yak 50. I was like... <laughs> Apparently, I am going to be traveling to Donetsk on the back of a hairy mountain animal. <laughs> like, and this is not what I was anticipating. And it's got propellers, which is always a worrying sign. I know some of you are old enough to remember. But as soon as I see propellers, I sort of think, this is, this, what this is basically doing is it's blowing me there. I'm very worried by this. I don't like the idea at all. And is it powered by mice? You know, that sort of thing. And, so the whole, and you realize, actually, without the big hubs, the big airplanes can't function. And a friend of mine, my friend John had a worse, he was in, uh, went, he was in the late 70s, admittedly, but he went to an airport in Ireland where uh, he arrives, and the airport is all dark, and there's glass doors, and he, you know, on the doors, and this sleepy guy emerges from behind a desk, comes round, opens the doors, lets him in, and then checks him in. And he thinks, well, this, so the, the guy, the check-in guy is the doorman who was also asleep. Turns on all the lights, John walks down the hall with his bags and reaches the security thing, which he can't get through. The same guy, a few minutes later, appears, lets him through security, and to cut a long story short, he ends up also being the guy who flies the plane. And he, seriously. And John gets into what actually is like a Royal Mail postage thing that flies him, and he arrives three hours late for his destination, it's the only aeroplane he thought he'd booked, and it turns out it was just a Royal Mail postage plane. And the same guy's playing all of those roles, like Abbott and Costello, it's very surreal. Now... In small airports don't have the capacity, that's an extreme, but they don't have the capacity to resource the global network. Actually, they can do their thing, but they need large airports like this to do all of the huge things that have to be done, but no small airport can provide on their own. A hub airport can be very stressful. It can be noisy, it can be impersonal. Some people find them relentless and confusing. They you walk into a, a hub airport like Heathrow and there's this massive range, these boards with dozens and you know, hundreds of different places they're flying. And if you're like me, you sometimes look at them and think, I, I have never even heard of that place you're flying to. I don't even know where it is. could be on the moon. I don't know. Massive boards. And I think sometimes the staff don't even know where, the peop- where all the flights are, go. Because there's so many of them. Massive boards. And then you, some people find that confusing and a little bit sort of, yeah, very corporate. And to be honest, hub airports can be relentless, and they can be a bit of a muddle, and they are a little bit impersonal, and they don't really have a sense of family, and they are not very pastoral. But you need hub airports to do a lot of the heavy lifting that the rest of the network can't do. 
Hub airports are also more dangerous. If you're a terrorist, you're going to want to go here, probably not to the place where my friend John met the postage plane. And so they are more dangerous as well. They're more likely to be targeted by attack by the enemy. But the airport network wouldn't work without them. They connect airlines and people and countries. They host services and carry costs that no smaller airport can. And in doing that, they serve the entire network. Antioch's like that. Antioch connects Perga and Italia and Pamphylia, Seleucia, Cyprus, Pisidia, Jerusalem, and all kinds of other places that we may or may not have heard of. Apostolically, it serves the church by sending Saul and Barnabas to reach the Gentiles, like most of us. If you're not a Jew, you are here today because of this church. They were the first people who ever said, we are gonna, the Holy Spirit told them to, but we are going to send people to reach Gentiles. No one had ever done that. Prophetically, this church is led to serve the poor in Jerusalem with financial relief in a time of famine. Because God spoke. And they haven't even, the famine hasn't even started, but they say, God has spoken. We must obey. So they heard prophets speak. Theologically, they serve the church. Because this is where false teaching first surfaces. The big false teaching of the first generation. You must be circumcised to be a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas went, no, you don't. We're going to sort this out. We're going to deal with the theological error here as well. Antioch, by being a hub through which people and money and teachings and gifts were continually coming and going, resourced the worldwide church in ways that are still benefiting us today. And we believe Kings is called to be like that. Not quite like that, not exactly like that. You know, we don't need to be the pioneer to reach Gentiles or deal with the circumcision thing. We don't have to be that church. Praise God, someone's already done that for us. But we believe that there is a mandate on us to serve the global church as people and money and teachings and gifts and leaders continually come in to see what we're doing and go out to serve the wider church around the world. And that will make us busier and more frenetic. And sometimes, though we work hard at communication here, but sometimes it will be confusing as well. Like Heathrow is confusing. No matter how clearly you do it, some people go, I didn't know we flew there. And I find that in the local church. Sometimes, what? I, what? We're involved in what? I didn't know we did that. You have that experience? Well, I have that experience, and I work here. And so I'm sure, I expect some of us do. You go, I, I had that with the, um, the when I heard in, that we were resourcing churches in Zimbabwe to provide curriculum for children to be taught, who, children who can't, get to, who can't otherwise be in school, and that we were teachers in this church are writing curriculum for the churches in Zimbabwe because we have expertise there. And I just, I, I, I heard of it. I was like, I have to go and ask someone, how, what is this? This is amazing to be able to serve the church that way. So what are we doing? How does it work? Who's involved? And someone said, well, we had 27 people responded and we've actually got 15 that we are working together to write this curriculum. I was like, that's fantastic. What a gift we can give because we have something that the church can be served with. But I had to go and find out what it was. I didn't know it was going on. I didn't even know we flew there. And we get it about things all the time. We had a conference hosted that I hosted in this very building, in this room, a couple of months ago. And there were people there from a theological conference, pretty obscure really. Most people in the church didn't know it was happening. We had people there from Istanbul. We had people there from Bangalore and Mumbai and Canada. I'm like, what are you all doing here? I I mean, obviously that's not how I, hello, welcome. It was really nice. But actually thinking, how on earth is this church serving people all over the place like that? And actually there's a hub dimension to this church that many of us don't even know is going on i was just this last week steve and deb and me and my wife rachel were out in cyprus at a global conference for the leaders of new frontiers which is the family of churches we're part of 
And I didn't know the, the, the stats until a couple of weeks ago. But I thought, okay, someone, 80,000 people in 80 countries in over 1,500 churches, and that's just the ones in our movement. There are then actually millions of believers in a network that is, was also represented there, but I can't tell you about them, sadly, because of security reasons. But we're, we're just connected with this enormous thing around the world and contributing to it, teaching into it, leading into it, thinking, wow. But a lot of people don't know that's going on, and they go, I didn't even know we flew there. One, one, one particular person comes up. There's a church in Mumbai, in India, comes up to me, and he just says, just wanted to say thank you so much because the, the things that you guys preached through a few weeks back on false teaching, he said, that, that's helped us so much with this particular issue we have in our, in our city. We not only got all of the, our churches in Mumbai to look at it, we actually suggested that groups of people, churches all around India looked at it that we're connected with, and we got them all to go through your, your teachings as a church on this issue. And I was like, I, what? And if I hadn't just bumped into him, I wouldn't know that. I was preparing this message. I thought, that'll work well as an illustration of what I mean. But I was thinking, but that kind of thing happens all the time. And many of you know examples that I don't know about. And so being a hub church is a great privilege, but it can also be a bit confusing because you realize there's so much going on, you can't always keep track of everything. And it may be costly as well because Antioch are sending away beloved leaders and people a lot of the time. And send, of course, in a day when you can't fly. So they send them away for months rather than for days. It's costly because a hub gets attacked more often. And the Antioch church, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the church where the enemy goes, I'm going to try and force people to get circumcised to be Christians, to kind of get division in the church between Jew and Gentile. I think that's significant. You know, this, you, you, you pray for the church when you're a hub church. You say, God, protect us, keep us united, because this is the kind of place that I would attack if I was the devil. Because I don't want churches to do that kind of thing. Because they're helping other churches. But even so, despite those challenges, it is a great privilege because ultimately it's not our big idea that's driving the agenda. It's not our flight schedules. It's the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church and saying, you need to do this. I'm telling you. you know, like when someone cooked up a good idea in a meeting, they went, yeah, we'll have a, have a moment to think. When it's, but that's not what happens in Antioch. Says, and then the Holy Spirit said, and they're like, okay, the third person of the Trinity came up with this idea. We better do it. And that means they send gifts to other nations. They send money. They send people. They send missionaries. Because the Holy Spirit spoke. And so they did. God said, and they did. God said, and they did. And look what happened. They resourced a global movement. And thousands of years later, you and me are here because of what they did. They resourced the church as a hub. But they also resource the church as a pioneer. And what I mean by that is that they are the church, in many cases, that had to punch through on all sorts of things that the rest of the church then had to follow them through on. Antioch is where a lot of things happened first. They were the first to deliberately evangelize the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The first to evangelize the Greeks. They were the first to be called Christians. That's a pretty major development. They were the first to send financial aid across the continents, chapter 11, verse 30. The first to send out cross-cultural missionaries, chapter 13, verse 3. The first to confront the teaching about circumcision, chapter 15 and verse 2. Each one of those things at the time was massively challenging. Now, fortunately, we don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry that in this church people are going to be going, you need to be circumcised to get saved. Because Antioch dealt with that for us. But at the time, that was a big obstacle, and they were a pioneer that broke through it, and the rest of the church went, oh, thanks, guys, that's helped us, because they'd done some of these things on our behalf. 
Until 1954, nobody had ever run a four-minute mile. And a lot of people thought it was impossible. A lot of people thought that running a four-minute mile was like as if I was to say running the hundred in less than eight seconds. Just impossible. You can't do it. Can't be done. No one, no one is that fast. And then Roger Bannister did it in 1954, and some of you remember it. There's a huge moment. I didn't think that was possible. Can anyone do this? And then Roger Bannister went, yes, we can. And when he went through, since that time, over 1,400 people have run a four-minute mile. Because suddenly people see a pioneer and they go, oh, it can be done. And we'll, we'll follow you through. In fact, one particular guy, a guy called Daniel Komen, I hope I've got his name pronounced right, from Kenya, has run two miles in under eight minutes, which is just, how does a person do that? But anyway, and so it's, it's pioneering often makes things possible simply by showing that something can be done when you didn't think it could. So people say that can't be done, and pioneers say, yes, we can. Now, I'm obviously not saying that King's is going to be the first church to run a four-minute mile or evangelize the Gentiles. But there are other ways in which we as a church are already and are called increasingly to pioneer on behalf of the global church. I really believe that. In some areas, actually, Kings already has. I know that because I used to be, until two years ago, I was a pastor in another church. And I, at times, looked at what was happening at Kings and went, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you could do that. And so I remember the first time I saw a video explaining the way that the ministry to the poor in this church works at a conference I was at and seeing an interview and thinking, I, have, I did not know that a local church would be able to resource something like that at that size of church for that many people. That's amazing. And then when I, I rang a friend of mine who was on the staff here at the time, when I heard that people in this church, and, and this is still true on average, people in this church getting, becoming believers every week. Across a year, that's on average, that's true. And I was hearing it and thinking, how does, any, how does that ever happen in Britain? I understand in other places. How does it happen here? How, I didn't know you could do that. And it's like my friend was on the, on the phone just saying, yeah, well, this is how it's working. And yes, we can. So Kings has already done that on some things. And I know, I believe that's con- increasingly going to be true on all kinds of areas where people look. And the way we do even multi-site now, the number of people here, a number of things like that. But actually on an issue like diversity where I think we have a really important pioneering role in this nation. And I know that, because, and that's just not me blowing smoke. I've got a lot, number of friends. You know, you know Martin Luther King's quote that 11 a.m. can often be the most segregated hour of the week? In many churches in the Western world, and elsewhere, I guess, that's still true. And so for many, but you can just look around you in this room and see, that is, that is, we're not perfect, we're not there, but that is an area where this church has made a lot of progress. And where in terms of talking openly about some of the difficult issues that surround culture and history and race and identity and legacy and all those things, it's not perfect, but this church has helped many other churches and many of them get in touch with us and say so. I've got a, a friend, some of you know him, called Ben Lindsay, who leads a church just up the road in New Cross. He's writing a book at the moment called Why We Need to Talk About Race. And in a quote, that just one of the quotes that jumped out to me as I was reading it through Uh, Recently, he just wrote two examples of the church facing up to the problems, repairing the damage of racism and looking forward, are from King's Church London. And he's using our church as an example to show other churches. We've had another friend of mine who leads a church in Brixton, Owen Hilton, some of you know him. And he came to us a couple of years back and he just said to us on this issue, he said, if you win, we all win. What he means is, if you you punch through the hole, it will help lots of other people. I had a guy from America get in touch about it. He used to play in the NFL. He leads a huge, diverse church in America. And he wrote to me and he said, just, it, I, I told him about the church. And he said, oh, no, I know. God's teaching his people through you. 
And I didn't know that he would know who we were. And as I'm hearing this stuff, I'm thinking, this is an important, and one issue, but an important role we have to play. And as we grow in size and influence, that pioneering, that punching through, that the rest of the church is, we're not the only ones doing it, of course. I don't want to get too big for our boots, but there is an important role we have to play here in showing people, yes, you can. Yeah, it's, it's possible then to be, I had this, again, one more example. I was Skyping with leaders from around the island of New Zealand. They were all over the island in different sitting rooms and having a Skype with about 10 of them. It's one of those lots and lots of postage stamp sized pictures on the screen. And you're talking to them all about how we do word and spirit worship in the church here and reflecting theologically on it. And they're all over the place from different kinds of backgrounds, actually. And they're just all here. Oh, you do that. How, so how does this work? And how do you? And it's like, you're, trying to, you're, you're doing it, and effectively churches like this are there to say, yeah, word and spirit, yes you can. Diverse and orthodox at the same time, yes you can. Preaching the gospel and serving the poor without either of them swallowing the other one, yes you can. Creedal and charismatic, yes you can. Strategic and prophetic, yes you can. Apostolic base, growing multi-site church, yes you can. We believe God is calling us to be a church like that, that resources the church as a hub and as a pioneer. It's also a church that reaches and restores. We're called to be a church that resources the wider church as well. And we're excited about that vision. And we want to invite people to step in, to own it, to pray into it, to give towards it, to contribute, to use your gifts to serve the wider church as that applies in your context. And so we want to do all of those things and we want it to be a great church. But ultimately, I've got to say, that is not where the hope is, either for Antioch or for us. It's a good thing to to pursue. It's a good thing to aspire and to look to use what you have for the glory of God and the benefit of the church. But that's not enough in the end. Our hope, ultimately, is that the God of the Antioch church is the same as the God of King's church. That actually the God who led them and spoke to them and resourced them and gave them these gifts and spoke to them to tell them how to use them is also our God and that he still speaks and directs and encourages and releases and raises up men and women with gifts to serve the wider church. I love how obvious that is when you read what Luke is telling us. When Barnabas arrived, he saw the grace of God. Not when Barnabas arrived, he saw a great group of men and women who were already doing really well. No, he arrived and he saw the grace of God. He said, goodness me, for a church to be doing this must be the grace of God here. It must be God's favor. Otherwise, how else would they do it? The hand of the Lord was with them and many were added. The Holy Spirit spoke to them and they did. It's full of phrases like that. My favorite is how Luke describes it in 1426. They declared all that God had done with them. I love the way that Luke gives the credit and Paul gives the credit in telling it that way. They declared, they'd gone out, they preached, seen all these churches established all over the place and then they came back and they said, look at what God has done with us. That's how resource church, that's actually how Christians in general should talk, isn't it? Look at what God has done with us. It's like, so not so much, yes, we can, as yes, he can. Look at what God has done and will do with us. In ancient Israel, there were three officers that used to serve the people of God, primarily in leadership. There were prophets, priests, and kings. The prophets were the ones who spoke the words of God to the world, which is what we want to do as we reach The priests were less about words and more about works. They were the people who prayed and sacrificed and healed and served in ways that made a difference to the nation. 
In that sense, you could say they restored. And the kings, like kings, were those who linked the tribes together and defended the nation and brought gifts from over here to build things over here to ensure that there was safety and prosperity over there. In that sense, the kings resourced. But ultimately, all three of those offices in Israel were swallowed up in and fulfilled by our great prophet, priest, king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, he is the one who reached. He is the prophet who reaches us, who speaks the words of God to us, who comes to get us when we're lost, and who invites us to come and see and then commissions us to go and tell. That's him. He's the prophet. He is the high priest who restores us, who makes us whole, who makes us clean, who pronounces us ceremonially able to approach God and receive all of his blessings, both individually and corporately, and restores the community we're part of. He refuses to walk past on the other side when he sees us lying bruised in the gutter. And as our king, he is the one who graciously provides us with heaven's resources and commissions us to use them for the strengthening of the church and the glory of God the Father. He, our prophet, priest, king, is the one on whom all of these hopes rest. He is the one who ultimately will reach and restore and resource his church and his world to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this church, actually, as well, who demonstrate to us not just how we can do these things, but actually did an awful lot of them on our behalf. We thank you for them. We thank you for their legacy. We thank you for the legacy of other resource churches that we can learn from. And we pray that we would have our own legacy that will touch lives as it already is all around the world. But ultimately, we thank you for Jesus because it is his legacy. It's his reaching, restoring, resourcing work that has brought us to the place where we can find life in his name and has given us hope and has given us forgiveness of sins and new life and a resurrection future. And we are so grateful for him and we thank you. Amen.